Hello, everyone. My name is Al Kim. I'm an adult rheumatologist at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm also on faculty at Washington University School of Medicine. I direct the Lupus Center here. And today we have the honor of having guests that we've had before here, uh, Dr. Len Calabrese. Len, do you mind introducing yourself? I'm a clinical immunologist and rheumatologist with an appointment in infectious disease, and I run an immunology center at the Cleveland Clinic. So, Al, nice to be with you. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine, Len. Today, we're going to be covering two relatively broad and obviously dynamic topics. One is going to be updates on long COVID, a space that has been um, very rapidly growing due to some uh, recent research done by numerous groups internationally. And then we're going to pivot over to current strategies to be able to manage COVID in our immunosuppressed populations. So, Let's start off with with long COVID. There's been clearer definitions clinically about what long COVID is. And so I know, Len, you've been writing about this uh, profusely, trying to be the voice of reason for many people. Can you give us what your impressions are right now of what long COVID is and how do we recognize it? Well, thank you. I would say uh, to start out that it is still a highly contentious area and that long COVID falls under the overall umbrella of a sequelae, which is some event that is a consequence of a previous event. And that previous event is having uh, being infected with SARS-CoV-2 and experiencing COVID-19 illness. And then it starts to uh, get a little looser as to what constitutes normal recovery, because that's what we aspire to, right? You have this illness, uh, you're sick for days or a week or weeks, and then at some point in time, it becomes out of the two standard deviations of what we think that recovery from a respiratory virus should be. These states of health that are either new and onset or previously exacerbated then fall into two large categories. One are these pathologically defined events. You know, I had COVID-19 three months ago. I had an MI 13 weeks from now. Is that is a sequelae or is it part of uh, life's journey? So those are pathologically defined. And, and we put them over here. The far larger group that everyone is most interested in focusing on are those conditions, which we, we use the, the rubric not pathologically defined. That's really not a fair assessment of them, but they're far less well understood. And these are patients that following uh, COVID-19 either develop new onset or have persistent fatigability, often with post-exertional features, neurocognitive complaints, pain that can be diffuse, sleep disturbances, and a number of other conditions this is where the intense focus is in trying to define it. Yet at the same time, while most people are setting the benchmark at three months for the onset of it, we don't really have universally accepted classification criteria like we have for so many conditions in, in RA. So you might be studying the people with neurocognitive complaints. I might be studying the people with diffuse somatic pain. Are they the same thing or are they not? So that, that's where we're at. What's your take? Yeah, so I I think, I I agree, but I I do think that at least in terms of what's been published in the literature, you know, we we don't obviously have the classification criteria that you have mentioned before, but people have taken a broad-based approach in terms of being able to at least report outcomes in various groups, uh, immunosuppressed, non-immunosuppressed, et cetera. 
in order to be able to be as, as inclusive as possible with the hopes that we can better define specific features, right, that are going to be uh, more attributable to this is the sequelae. I'm just looking at the CDC website on long COVID or post-COVID conditions, and they literally have a heading that says symptoms that are hard to explain and manage, which <laughs> is a huge source of frustration for a lot of the patients that are going on social media to describe their experiences. Uh, if you look on Twitter, for example, there are ample descriptions of patients extremely frustrated with the inability for the system to really help them out. And I think at ACR, Len, you brought up a really important point. You know, we really have to be deep empaths. We have to be listening to these patients. We, if we, the second we don't validate their experience, poor things ensue. Um, could you, you know, expand on that a little bit more? Because I think what you said at ACR was very, very uh, uh, poignant. Thank you for the, the comment. I phrase this uh, because it, despite this being contentious of what is under the umbrella and what is not under the umbrella, the person in the room at a healthcare encounter that counts is the patient and it's the patient's voice. Regardless of what we know or don't know about immunopathogenesis, it's they who are suffering. So I think it's important to treat them as we would want to be treated, to be validated, to be heard, uh, also, to be candid, that we're in the process of trying to understand this and that we can provide guidance and a path ahead without totally understanding this or having any approved treatments for this. So empathy is a paramount, particularly when there is such uncertainty that surrounds this condition. On social media, this is very contentious. And people that even intimate that there is a psychological component pilloried for this. And at the same time, there's a strong evidence that there is a neuropathologic basis for much, much of this through functional imaging, deep profiling of uh, CSF and, and examinations of tissues. So I think that we're learning a lot about many unexplained uh, sequelae, post-infectious sequelae, and that is a positive. You know, people have been complaining about MECFS from a myriad of infectious conditions for decades and decades, very unheard in terms of their own voice. And now they're being validated, and that's where the future is. The other thing, I just uh, segue, because we could talk about this forever, is that the other very hot area now is, is trying to look at these discrete areas of pathogenesis. And the observation that autoimmunity ensues after COVID-19 is incontrovertible. Whether it's the driver of the bus or the passenger in the bus, we don't know. The fact that there are orthogonal data that suggest that for many persistence of viral elements, whether that's from productive infection or some other mechanism that we don't yet understand. And then, you know, this emerging area of microclots that everyone is talking about, you can see with the naked eye and are now being quantified by more standard techniques like flow. As always, um, Alfred Lord Knight Whitehead said, uh, seek simplicity, but distrust it. <laughs> uh, you, yeah. know, but, you know, we have all these pathogenic mechanisms plus microbiome dysfunction that persists for years. Is that responsible for everything or maybe one tiny thing in this? And this is where the heavy lifting is coming. Right. Yeah. Now. I, I, you were, we're going to, as, as, as terrible as COVID has been for everyone, the few glimmers of hope is going to be the ability for us to be able to have samples pre and post COVID 
uh, longitudinally for years is going to be incredibly valuable for multiple disease processes. You previously mentioned an immunologic signature of COVID is going to be autoimmunity. And you're obviously referring to a substantial amount of incredible work by Inaki Sands, who is the chief of rheumatology down at Emory and a B-cell biologist extraordinaire who has shown that there's a B-cell activation pathway called the extrafollicular pathway that is the genesis of a lot of the autoantibodies that are observed in people with COVID-19. And interestingly enough, it is this pathway that generates autoreactive B-cells. There's eventually making autoantibodies in lupus, right? And I think the question I have in that particular space is going to be, will the exofilter pathway kind of predominance in COVID be as durable as something like observed in lupus? Because if it is, there are lessons learned in terms of how mechanistically this occurs. Um, the data from Georg Shet with the CAR T cells in lupus targeting CD19, where autoantibodies that don't go away with standard B cell depletion therapies are going away, indicates that this yeah. could potentially be reset. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be really interesting two, three, four-year data about the durability of both serologic autoimmunity, but that could translate to clinical autoimmunity. That's going to be incredibly helpful for rheumatologists downstream. Just a final comment, you know, countervailing to that is the some of the very interesting work by PJ Utz and the Stanford group showing that the development of autoimmunity and the signature of autoimmunity is not unique to COVID-19 and can be seen not only uh, after other respiratory and non-respiratory infections, but also after critical illness. And so, you know, an autoimmune response that we're getting this totally different glimpse of right now, we're used to seeing patients with an autoimmune disease and then looking for autoantibodies. These are people that have had insults to many, at least to me, uh, it suggests that, you know, an autoimmune response, this auto-antigenome type of response, maybe part of a network of uh, you know, homeostatic regulation that we have yet to even start to figure out. So are those autoantibodies auto causing this? I don't know. There is some evidence uh, uh, very recent in the, in the last month, I think it's plus one article, showing a fading of the autoantibody response at one year. So anyway, we'll come back and three months and we'll have a totally different story. Right. Exactly. So let's, this is, this is just relevant, point. right. This is just relevant for February, 2023. <laughs> These right. comments are being made today. Um, yeah. So I guess let's pivot to the impact of long COVID or, you know, or even uh, kind of the risk factors of long COVID in patients with rheumatic diseases, the state literature that are starting to emerge I think some of the best one is coming from the MassGen Brigham effort by Jeff Sparks and Zach Wallace and their entire extraordinary group there. Um, you know, they published in the late um, November in Annals of Rheumatic Disease, looking at the impact of vaccination and the acquisition of, of uh, long COVID or you know, the other uh, term would be post-acute sequelae of, of COVID-19. And it does appear that people who are fully vaccinated, although it's not 100%, there's, a, there's definitely a strong trend to having reduced acquisition of long COVID in these people, which is, I think, consistent with the observations made in the immunocompetent population also. There are some data also with the use of antivirals as associating 
with reduced acquisition long COVID. Although I'm not sure, have you? I don't know if you've seen any literature in the immunosuppressed population regarding this. You know, I'm, I'm with you on all of these. That uh, early and aggressive therapy has also been shown in other observational cohort analysis. And there are also data from non-immunosuppressive vaccines of a protective effect. And there's also some epidemiologic evidence that this is probably going to be less impactful in the Omicron era versus pre-Omicron variants. You know, having said that, all of these studies are observational. And you have to look at it, uh, uh, looking for more robust data to demonstrate that. But, you know, not getting infected, having a mild infection, being treated early on, uh, I'm all for it. I think this is actually a good way to segue into the current strategies of managing um, COVID in the immunosuppressed population. We continue to see issues in our own system, particularly with B-cell depleted patients and those on a substantial burden of immunosuppressive therapies. We are seeing them uh, somewhat disproportionately represented in hospitalized COVID patients at Barnes. And I'm sure you're seeing similar observations in, in Cleveland. You know, the arsenal that we have has changed a bit. Um, and that one change in particular has been quite dramatic in terms of the use of monoclonal antibodies, both for pre-exposure prophylaxis, but also post-exposure prophylaxis. It's pretty clear that the newer variants that have emerged, the Omicron subvariants that are really immune evasive variants, have really caused problems for the, you know, the current monoclonal arsenal. You've obviously have published uh, very nice observations pre uh, late Omicron stage of the use of products like Tixagevimab, Silgevimab, known as Evishel, in these populations. If you don't mind, just at least from a proof of principle that these uh, pr this PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis with uh, monoclonal antibodies is effective, do you just mind sharing some of the experiences you've had at the Cleveland Clinic? Sure. Back this all up, monoclonal antibodies were a very prominent part of our armamentarium, not only for treatment in patients, particularly those that can't mount humoral immune responses, both uh, early uh, treatment and uh, also uh, some data in, in patients with advanced disease, but ultimately went through phases of post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, for a time, we had activity uh, that could prevent progression in people who were exposed. And then Gleefully, we saw the introduction of pre-exposure prophylaxis, particularly designed, as you point out, for those people who can't respond with vaccine to vaccines. And I'll just add, I think we've done a lot to understand who is really immunocompromised. And, you know, we're very actually pleased and we love to talk to our patients that people on a single biologic monotherapy, if it's not a B-cell depleting agent, people are doing quite well with this and people on low-dose methotrexate and and beyond. But those people who um, are on high-dose immunosuppression, B-cell depleting agents, this was a tremendous comfort to them. It was a highly effective form of prevention. And then add to that all the oncology patients, uh, 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 primary immunodeficiency patients, transplant patients, et cetera. And not surprisingly, understanding what viruses do in a Darwinian fashion, they escape from pressure of uh, the integrated immune response. And a monoclonal is really a one-trick pony. Its paratope is just directed at one single thing. And Omicron, nearly a third of the T-cell epitopes are uh, mutated. Nearly a third of the B-cell epitopes are mutated. So 
We don't have one now, but there are new ones on the way. And uh, I'm going to throw this at you. The technology is there to produce these very rapidly. But these uh, clinical trials, as we've discussed in other settings, are kind of insufferable right now. Uh, it's going to take a long time, and a lot of people are going to pay a price for this. But you, yeah. you want to embellish on that? Yeah, so we, we're not in the business of pissing off the FDA. But the thing is, is that I, I agree with you is that I think some of the audience will know uh, AstraZeneca is developing an Evashel 2.0, so, so to speak, um, the antibody that's going to be the thing that is going to be likely effective in the current environment today, February 2023. Uh, it doesn't actually have a, a name name. It has a code, AZD1061. But it can neutralize all the newer variants, the BA.4.6, BQ.1.1, BXX, and its subvariants. But the issue here is that uh, a trial is needed to be able to demonstrate safety. And, and so it's called Supernova. Um, we are, uh, you know, for full disclosure, sites for this. And we're trying to busily, you know, rapidly get the contracts and the regulatory stuff in line so we can recruit people. Um, but it, this takes time, right? And um, the issue then becomes by the time data is ready to be presented to the FDA at whatever time point that may be, is the relevance of Evishel 2.0 going to be irrelevant, right? Has the virus then found a, a secondary escape from current immune responses? And I think we have to anticipate that, right? The BXX, for example, that subvariant came from Singapore, which was 90% double vaccinated. And again, that's double vaccinated to common variant. We definitely diversify our antibody repertoire to be able to try to anticipate other variants. But nevertheless, the real issue here is that the virus does have that capacity to be able to find weaknesses in adaptive immunity through these approach, you know, our vaccination approaches and try to survive through those uh, new channels. Unfortunately, more and more people are going to be infected by these new variants, or potentially more fortunately, they're going to be uh, boosted by the bivalent or certainly the BA.5 vaccines. Then we're going to have increasing pressure on the virus to try to evade those responses, all right? And it's, it's going to be interesting to see in retrospect whether or not the strategies that we have right now to really protect the public from harm, is it, is it the right way of doing it in a particularly vulnerable situation for an important population of our patients? This is a, it's a discussion that's going to be in, uh, intense. Yeah, and, and the, the sub rosa is that we have the technology to uh, appraise the neutralization capacity ex vivo it, very well. It's it's very standardized, you know, uh, and the, the, the antibody itself, the framework is uh, virtually the same. It's just the idiotypic areas that are governed by that um, that have changed. So anyway, we'll, we'll say some months from now, we'll be seeing something new, hopefully, to protect uh, these patients. Let me ask you, um, a lot has been said here about who warrants antiviral therapy uh, we have several antivirals uh, available to us. Several more uh, look like they're in late stage development. 
Uh, they seem to be uh, highly underutilized, uh, at least based on national data, with a lot of uh, social determinants of health playing a, a role in this. You know, in a practice of rheumatologists, immunologists who take care of immunocompromised patients, who are, who are high on your list to, to get this and who are plus minus, or how do you make those decisions? So it's, it's a very complicated, nuanced topic, as you brought up before, because disparities play a major role in the utilization of a lot of the antivirals. Um, I think a blanket statement that antivirals are effective still remains in effect. Um, I think we're very fortunate that SARS-CoV-2 does not have, uh, the, the RNA polymerase has proofreading capacity. So it can't mutate as quickly as other viruses and try to evade antiviral pharmaceutical intervention. But we have had continuing trouble, you know, particularly with our lupus patients who are predominantly uh, minority and at least in our center, about 40% of them uh, live in the 30% most vulnerable neighborhoods using the social vulnerability index by the CDC. And we've had trouble accessing that population whenever they feel like they're sick with COVID. We don't understand those root causes. On the other hand, for uh, the patients who have a little have better access, uh, we have been using antivirals pretty freely, not just in the most vulnerable, the B cell depleted people in cyclophosphamide, let's say, the mycophenolate high dose prednisone. We've been using it much more liberally in these people. And, you know, generally, I think a lot of these people do quite well afterwards with a pocket full. And we, I can't tell you a, a specific number that do have rebound. Um, and we've talked about this before, Lynn, about where the hell is the virus harboring itself that eludes both yeah. innate you know, immune responses generated. And of course, in, you know, some of the more immunosuppressed people, who knows, you know, what immune responses they have, but certainly uh, the antivirals aren't accessing these niches. And I'm fascinated by where these are. But overall, I think if you took a population level look at this, antivirals still have a major role to play in attenuating both severe, you know, disease severity, uh, symptom uh, duration, and certainly, um, you know, potentially as data will come out, hopefully long COVID. I hope so too. And uh, I think that uh, time will tell. You know, the issue of rebound it has been now well documented, but now we're also seeing that even in the course of uh, natural infection resolution, uh, a, a somewhat similar size of population clears virus and then rebounds. So we've got a lot to understand about this. I think we'll be talking about this for quite a while. Yeah. So this is this is just a... Uh a chapter in a multi-volume story on, on, you know, the impact of COVID on our patients with rheumatic diseases on immunosuppression. Uh, so with that, Len, obviously wonderful to chat with you. You know, these discussions always, you know, remind us um, of where we need to go in terms of research in the future and, and, and improving overall care for our rheumatic disease patients. Uh, so with that, I'll wrap up here again. My name is Al Kim. And again, thank you, Len. And I hope everyone has a great day. Take care.